Hello to all of you out there. I am Ulrike Seminati, host of the podcast, Empowering Female Leaders, for women who want to thrive. Every week you will get new perspectives, exciting insights, and empowering messages of women from all over the globe. Welcome to another episode of my podcast, Empowering Female Leaders. I am pleased to welcome today Jill Phillips, who is the author of Lemler Street, which is an upbeat book based on the memories of her mom, uncle and her first love. It is set in 1963 in London at the Elephant and Castle in a close-knit, poor working-class community, in a cockney way of life that has long since disappeared. World War II, only 18 years earlier, had deeply affected the adults in her family and consequently the decisions that they made that year which changed their lives forever. Jill, do you want to add a few words about you personally? I think the only thing I would like to add, that was a lovely introduction, by the way, is that your upbringing very much changes who you are. And what I didn't realize at the time of being raised by my mother back in the 1960s is how her influence would influence me later on in, in my goals and achievements in life. And the other thing that happened was when I was writing the book, Obviously, you're rethinking and thinking and analyzing those days and thinking about interactions with your family members. And I really began to understand how much influence my mother and my family in general and their standards and their beliefs has affected me even to this very day. And I, it's not until you start to look back and you give time to think about those things that you really do begin to understand your roots and where you came from and how much your own family and the way you're raised really impacts you even when you're in your older years. The first ideas and values that you received early on in your life are the ones that you carry with you forever. And even if they don't really fit to the current life that we are having right now, they are still there. So you say that your mom was raised by a regimental sergeant major. And so she was compelled to be the best in everything. And that included both her clothes and also everyone within her sphere of influence. I think we know that many women are like that. How did that influence the perception of yourself and your decisions, the decisions that you made in life? Well, when I was uh, 10, which is the age that I, I was when the, the book is set, I really wasn't aware of being influenced. All I knew was mum knew best. Mum told me what to do. Other people do these things that we don't. So as an example, other families had to have hand-me-down clothing and had second-hand clothing. We always had new clothes. We were never, ever uh, able to wear second-hand clothes. So we always went off to Marks and Spencers to get our clothes every week. And if we went anywhere, we had to be dressed, probably the best-dressed person in the room. So... If I went to a children's party, I'd have the biggest, frilliest dress there and everyone else would have just their regular clothes on. So mum always instilled in us, myself and my brother, from a very early age that we were going to be better than the life she had. Uh, she grew up in a very poor neighborhood, 12 brothers and sisters. There was only one tap with running water in the whole house. The, the toilet was down the garden. Everyone had to share beds and bedrooms because there were so many of them. She said, you would never, ever live like that. So back in the 60s, because of World War II and the housing shortage, often whole families were still living in one big bedroom because they, they just didn't have the housing stock there to use. However, we at Lamlas Street 
had three bedrooms. So my brother had his own room, I had my own room, and my parents had their separate room. Now, the, the, the house was actually already condemned when we moved in. So in my brother's room, for example, there was a hole drilled in the ceiling. So when it rained, the rain could drip into the bucket because if it didn't do that, the, parent, the ceiling would collapse. But it was still, we weren't in one room. And that really was a good example for how our whole life was. Whatever we did, we had to do better. Mum was very goal-focused. So it wasn't so much how you're feeling today, it's what are you going to do today? How did you do on your homework? Have you done your homework yet? I mean, it was drilled into me day after day after day. Education was important because you were not going to go and work as a retail clerk, somebody in a store. What you were going to do, you were going to have professions. So I went into occupational therapy and worked in healthcare for 30 years. My brother was an electrician. And so we were both trained to go into our jobs. Now, the problem with that is it's, it's really good being goal-focused, but sometimes you just want somebody to give you a hug and say, there, there, you're a wonderful person, despite the fact you just failed a test. And so at Lamna Street, my auntie lived downstairs. It's what we would call like an extended family unit, so like an in-law suite downstairs. So we lived upstairs, huge old Victorian house. And my auntie and uncle lived downstairs. There was no uh, locked doors between us. You just walk downstairs and they had their own apartment, basically. So my auntie was a lady I'd go to all the time, Aunt Helen. Um, if I just needed somebody, you know, give me a hug and say, oh, you're lovely. Oh, what you've done is wonderful. And I go back to mum. I'm saying, okay, now have you done that yet? <laughs> so, uh, so I got unconditional love from auntie and very goal-focused life from mum. So it was actually a good combination. <laughs> And I, I think that all came from their backgrounds, right? Yeah, exactly. Because uh, parents that, that are very goal-oriented, it, it's a good thing because you have a role model you can be inspired by. It very often leads to a very high level of self-criticism. So, yeah. And people become perfectionists because they're never satisfied with themselves, which in turn leads to a low self-confidence despite the fact that they're high achievers. Was there something that was happening to you or was this mitigated by the relationship with your aunt? It was to a certain extent. Interesting that my brother, who's three years younger, is much more like my mum than I am. I'm like 50% mum, 50% my auntie. So I have a, a side to me that needs a hugs and cuddles as my brother's still very goal-focused. But I think that's because when we were 12 and when we moved, my aunts moved to another location. So my brother didn't get quite as much time with her as I did. So basically, I got a mixture of both, really, I think is what it was. And so at certain times in life, and I, I think this is for everyone, you tend to be more one way or the other. So when you've got lots of stuff to do, you're more goal-focused. And then when you've got more time to yourself, then you become more relaxed and more quality of life focused. And so now I'm basically retired, well, from day-to-day -day work anyway, I do this, which I love. Um, I find that I want a balance to my life. And the other thing you have to remember is that back in the 1960s, Life was very different. People's education levels were very different. Our life expectations are very different. Now we, if we have a mental health issue, we might have to go and get help with that and go to a counselor. And we are aware of the need for a healthy mental health. Whereas back in the 1960s, nobody talked about mental health. They all tried to keep food on the table. They all tried to get enough money coming in the house so that people didn't starve. So it's a very different context you're dealing with. So in the day, what mum did was brilliant. Now, she probably would be a very different person if she'd been raised more as we are. 
I think it's all about Maslow's pyramid of needs, obviously, when you're... I was thinking that, yeah. <laughs> ...about food and safety first, then you're in a totally different situation than when you can or have the luxury to think about self-actualization. When you look back into your life since then, over all these destinies, did you consciously reflect on the influence that your mother or other adults in your life had on you? Or did this come only and later now in the past years when you start writing your book that you became truly conscious about the mechanisms that were installed in you and how this influenced the path of your life? I think what happened for me, when I worked as an occupational therapist and I was also a hospital manager in Canada, I worked in mental health and I had my whole 30 years of my career. And in, I think one of the reasons I gravitated towards mental health, I was trying to understand my own motivations and my own drive. Uh, so that was sort of percolating through my life while I was working. But really, it wasn't until I started writing the book and I started asking mum questions. Mum's passed on now since the book's been published uh, through COVID, she, she went. But it gave me the chance to say to mum things like, so mum, why did we move? I don't really understand why you made that decision. And so I could, as I was writing the book, it enabled me to talk to her about why she took, made those choices. And that has really helped me to give me a lot of peace to understand that she made the best decision she could at the time. I didn't always understand because the other thing you have to remember back in the 60s is that children were seen and not heard was a phrase you were given all the time. So in other words, if you were a child, you had no feelings, you had no right to say anything, you had no right to have any, there was no family discussions if there was a family discussion, it's all the adults and usually the male adults, the men, because men made decisions for the rest of the family. So we weren't asked for our input. We just had to go along. As long as you went to school and they gave you food and clothing, their role was done in terms of how they looked after their children. Mental health concepts and that sort of thing completely, even I don't think my mum ever understood them, to be honest. Um, she didn't understand what this fuss was about, all this soft stuff. that <laughs> had no relevance in her, in her life. So very different times, but I think the thing that it did for me is it set me up and I didn't realize it. So that after I went through divorce, which it was a difficult marriage, but after I went through divorce, all those messages and beliefs from, and especially writing the book really brought into focus for me how much I could achieve in my life, even though I was in my later years. How did you find that out? Because it's a great insight if you find out later that you can achieve a lot, despite the fact that often divorce is a very disruptive element in life. I know many women who afterwards become stronger than they've ever been before. But what was this process that was happening where you understood, wow, there's so much more that I can do? I think part of it was I'm stubborn. My mother was stubborn and my daughter is stubborn as well, I'm pleased to say. So I was getting so frustrated through the divorce process. I think I've been frustrated for a lot of years. I haven't felt I'd been supported. I had all these dreams and I hadn't acted on them. And then as the decades go by, you have another birthday and um, say an, another favorite auntie or uncle has passed on. So they've gone. And it gets to the point where you begin to realize because of all these losses of family members and the life that you grew up with, especially you know, the days of Landless Street or the people who were in my wedding pictures, they've all, most 95% of them are, are dead by now. They're all gone. I thought, well, what am I waiting for? I've done all these things for other people my whole life. I've always made sure everyone else was okay and put me myself on the back burner. Maybe it's time for me to do that. 
And then, of course, you read self-help books and so on like that. My personal belief is that, which is what I would not have said probably 15 years ago, is that the best way to help other people is to be a role model. It's not to sacrifice yourself and give them what they want. It's to lead the way. Uh, and what I found with my daughter, it's like, mom, you know, you've done this, you've written a book and this. And so my daughter's expectations for her life are that she will write a book. Why not? Mum wrote one. I'm sure I can write one. And she's a writer anyway, she tends to write a lot, hasn't published, but she tends to write. And she's very creative. When you write a book, something strange happens in a sense. Like, So I wrote the book, which I didn't intend to publish, but anyway, I did publish it in the end. And what you find that people say, oh, you've written a book. It's like, well, yeah, but I've written a thesis. I did my master's degree. Um, I've got a thesis there. Nobody's asked me about my thesis. But, oh, you've written a book. Where, where can I get a copy? And it's like, oh, really? Oh, it's like neighbours. You're just chatting to neighbours. And oh, what are you doing these days? I want to do a podcast. Oh, well, so what's that all about? People are fascinated by the fact you've actually written a book and that you, um, and then they read it and then learn more about your life. Things happen you don't expect to, and a lot of it came from the book. You start off by writing down a few stories, and then you see if you can get a few more stories, because the more you think about it, the more stories you generate. And then you talk to family members and you get a few more stories, because they know you're writing a book. But they will think you've lost your mind, by the way. They don't think that you're clever because you're writing a book. It's like, oh, you're writing a book, are you? Like, yes, okay, that's good. And eventually it gets to the point where you say, you know, well, maybe I'll publish it. And then you get a lot of encouragement from people as well, a ton of encouragement from people outside the family, ironically enough, who have also written books. And that's how you do things. You never want to think about the end goal because you're going to totally overwhelm yourself and tell yourself you can't do it. You just start literally one step at a time, which is how I start with the book. It's a beautiful story. I think many people dream about writing a book and think, oh, it's such a big task. I will never be able to do that. And I will never be able to publish it. I mean, there, there are seemingly so many obstacles in between, in between having the idea and then really publishing it. So it's a big journey and it's a great achievement. And what you're sharing here is the idea that even if you have such a well, such an ambitious goal that you can still tackle it and just keep going, just start with it and you will see where it goes. It helps actually breaking down a big vision of something like, wow, I'm writing a book <laughs> into something. Oh, let's start with the first chapter and see how it goes, which is much more accessible, obviously, than having the full book in mind all the time and, and making this pressure on yourself. It is quite interesting that you went into doing it this way despite the fact that we are rather raised with the idea that you need to achieve a specific result. <laughs> so you're doing the exact yeah. opposite. Do you see that? that is yeah, I do. I hear exactly what you're basically. saying. Yeah. yeah, I was raised that way. I hear exactly what you're saying. I know exactly what you're saying. For me as well, I mean, if I had sat down and said, I'm going to publish a book in two years, I would never have done that. Number one, people, you know, your friends would have given you a strange look, said, what are you doing? Um, but you literally do it one step at a time. So that way you're in a sense you're sort of feeling your way through the past. So if you start out by saying, I'm going to write down a few stories and you do it, and then it's, okay, what shall I do with the stories? So then that's step two. Then you have the stories in some sort of order and then you're looking at chapters and how to develop the story further. And the other thing is, as you go along, if you need help, ask for help. So for me, When it got to the point where I had all these stories and I had, I printed off every story I had all over the floor, paper everywhere. 
trying to organize into some sort of interesting storyline. And I thought, no, I, I just, I'm totally overwhelmed by this. I don't know what to do. And so then I thought, okay, maybe I need somebody to help me with that. So then I looked around and um, I knew of somewhere that had uh, book writing coaches to help give the, the book some structure and, and storyline. And so one of the things that he recommended, for example, was bookend uh, the story about Christmas. I love Christmas. So bookend means that you're going to, chapter one is about Christmas and the last chapter is about Christmas a year later and how the two Christmases are so different because a lot of things had happened during the year in between to the family. And so whereas Christmas on um, chapter one was a regular, huge, great family party, like 200 people there, all the family members there. And then when we get to the last chapter, it's the same house. The mum was doing the same things, had the same huge party, but there wasn't as many people there and the atmosphere was very different and there was a lot of sadness. Although people were trying to enjoy themselves, they were really sad as well because of the things that happened during the year. And so that was great. Some of the book coach said, okay, so bookend it. So I did that. So ask for help is the bottom line. It got me over that little next step because if you don't ask for help when you really need it, what you're going to find is you give up on the project. And if I'd given up on the project then, I would not be sitting here talking to you now. I would not be able to go onto Amazon and say, oh, wow, look at that. My picture's on Amazon. So those things don't happen. So number one, don't look at the, that your total goal because it'll seem too overwhelming. Just, it's a bit like going up a hill. Just look at the next step. Eventually you'll get to the top of the hill. I talk about steps, actually. The other thing I did when I was 65, I took up running. So which people thought I'd lost my mind. I said, oh, I'm practicing for a 5K. I was working with a personal trainer at the time. And I said, I'd like to do a 5K. And I thought, oh, well, she's going to say, you know, you're doing fine right now. Don't worry about it. And she said, oh, no, no, it's okay. She said, go to your doctor, make sure you're okay there. So I went to my cardiologist. Oh, yes. She checked, pat me on the shoulder. Oh, you're doing fine. She said, did all the stress tests and things. And then I went back to my trainer. So, okay, so what do I do now? She said, oh, well, you do it very slowly. So there was this running track at my gym. Quarter of a mile was the total running track. Every time we went round, I started off with six steps. I ran, then I walked the rest. And then I gradually increased it. And then three and a half months later, I went to the Saturday morning park run here to run the 5K. There were like 500 people there. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, it's going to be this big. And anyway, I was the last one to cross the finish line. But you know what? I did finish it. I mean, literally, as I crossed the finish line, they were packing up behind me. But they were so encouraging, uh, so supportive, the volunteers there, that I went back the next week and the next week. And I slowly moved my way up the field. So in reality, that's how you do things. You don't have to be the best. You don't have to be um, the winner at all. What you're looking for, I like writing a book or running a 5k is the experience of doing it meeting new people that that you know in that field so I used to meet with a ton of runners once a week and that changed my um, attitude towards healthy eating and my body and and the other thing I learned is my body was capable even in those advanced years which is what I was thinking in my head of doing all sorts of things because if you say to somebody who's starting to run at the age of 65, they say, oh, you're going to hurt yourself. Don't do that. Be careful. But no, if you, you are careful, your body responds amazingly. So I found out a lot about my physical abilities. And on top of that, that I was doing working on the book as well. 
And so I thought, wow, I, I didn't know I could do any of this. It's a real surprise to me that I'm here where I am right now. I really thought by now it would be like, oh, okay, you're retired now. So you're going to go grocery shopping? <laughs> and that would be the, you know, the, the end of the day sort of thing. That would be the excitement, but it's nothing like that. No, it isn't. It's interesting how you got there because in the, earlier on you said that there was this time when many people passed away in your life and when you started reflecting that life is short and that there are other things you might want to do for before you will pass away and we all will pass away one day. I know that in the audience we have women who are mostly younger, like in their early 30s, for example, and having certainly the feeling they have tons of time ahead of them. What would you tell them when it comes to to acting upon your dreams as quickly as possible and not postponing taking action? Well, okay. I would say to them that act on your dreams because it's so much more fun than you will ever, ever imagine. Life becomes really exciting. If you, if, say, if you want to write a book and you're in your 30s and you've written a book, suddenly, like for me, you're, you're into marketing, you're, you have a website, you're doing podcasts, people treat you differently. You might do another book or you might go on to say, well, I'd like to do a screenplay for a movie. Doors open up you can never, ever, ever imagine. And so, and the earlier you do it, the more doors are going to be opening up for you and the more surprises you're going to get. And people treat you differently and you are different how you interact with the world. It's so much more fun now than ever was my life. I mean, I, I did the traditional 30 years in a marriage, raising children, that sort of thing, focusing on career. And which was lovely, but this is so much more enjoyable. So I would say to them, do it now because it's an awful lot of fun. You were sharing some very clear steps on how you start such a process. The first one was, yes, reflect on your life, reflect on your vision, reflect on your dreams. Just find out what you really want. What do you really want to do? And if it's a big project and you have the feeling, wow, this is really overwhelming, I can't ever reach that most likely, and then you break it down into something smaller, some more tangible. At the example of a book, you just start writing without having in mind, I need to get to 300 pages absolutely within one year or having this pressure on yourself and then just doing it. And then you said what is then very important as well, at some point when you get stuck, when you feel like, oh, no, I, I really can't do it. I don't know how to continue or I don't have the time anymore, that you start asking for help and you don't shy away from asking other people and getting this input. And by this, then moving forward again and eventually finishing on your project. I can imagine that we have quite a few listeners who were thinking already about one day I will write a book. Where can we find your book? So it's Lamlash Street. It's a strange name. It's named after a village in Scotland. It's L-A-M-L-A-S-H, Lamlash Street. And you can find it on Amazon. Uh, it's on .co.uk, .ca and .com. And I also have a website as well where you'll see some of the family photographs. And the website address is J M Phillips P H I L L I P S author dot com. Okay, thank you. And we will put all these links into our show notes so that people can very easily access it. I thank you very much, Jill, for this interesting conversation and for the insights that you gave us. And I wish you all the best for your future. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Do you want to get free access to my ebook Top 10 Achievers Lessons? 
To get your free ebook, all you have to do is leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Then send me a screenshot of your review to my email address contact at ulrikaseminati.com and I will send you your ebook straight away. This was another episode of Empowering Female Leaders. What are the questions and topics in female leadership that you are interested in? Let me know in the comments on YouTube and Instagram or join our LinkedIn group. I am excited to hear from you. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe for new talks with inspiring women from all around the globe. Thank you for listening.